0: Hello listeners, this is Moses here. I wanted to give a slight content warning for this episode that although we're not talking about specific details, we are dealing with the matter of abuse in its many forms. If this is not healthy for you to listen to, then just feel free to skip this episode and join us for the next one. I also wanted you to know that our guests offer many resources in this episode as well, which may be helpful for you or someone you know. Hello, I'm Moses. I'm Carrie. Welcome to the MenoCast. Today on our podcast, we're talking with the two coordinators of the Mennonite Central Committee Manitoba Abuse Response and Prevention Program. Their names are Jamie Friesen and Val Hebert. We're going to chat about abuse and the church. When, why, and how does abuse happen among Christians? How should we properly understand the role of power? And how can we courageously respond and prevent abuse in our institutions? Thanks for joining us. Carrie, it is great to uh, see you again, to be together with you after what seems like a bit of a long time. Hope you're doing all right all the way there in Ottawa.
1: Yeah, it's been a while, but it's good to be back.
0: Does it feel like summer?
1: It does. Here it's... Yeah, the shorts are out. Yeah, we're wearing shorts <laughs> already. What about you in Manitoba? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's only been like a few weeks, but it finally feels like you know the turn of a season and, and ready for something new, which is always very exciting. Uh, it's kind of the, oh, it the is, yeah, yeah the news that we want to hear. Um, you know, as we get started on this this episode, I th- it's going to be a little bit heavy. Um, and, and Carrie, I'm curious about your own uh, library. Okay, you know, at the church, yeah, you, you have a library oh yeah like a yeah you've got your books are you a book i don't even know this about you are you a book person you like buying books and even if you don't read them
1: yeah i am a half book person yeah i think yeah yeah i have some books that i haven't read yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i yeah, feel like our church that's has me, a little but... library and i have a little shelf in my office yeah and mm-hmm. I think you're a book person. Well, I think you have a lot.
0: I do have a lot, and often have books that um, they're on the list to read, but I just haven't got to them yet. But they mm-hmm. look good on the bookshelf, which I I like. But this last month, or or even a couple months ago, yeah. I went through a bit of a culling, okay, and I, and I had a bit of a a bit of a time, and, and it all came down to. Um, sexual abuse or sexual misconduct that some of our big name Christian leader people um, got into. So, you know, on my bookshelf for for a long time, I had some of the works of John Howard Yoder. Right. You know, he's our big Mennonite theologian. Um, and you know, this came out already a while ago, right. But uh, about the, the sexual abuse he committed while at Anabaptist Mennonite biblical seminaries and, and, and other places, I mean, it just like horrible stuff. Um, and for a long time, I was like, well, what do we do? Right. This is one of the most prominent Mennonite theologians. And anyways, I I kept his books on my shelf. Mm. Right. And then it just seems like in this last year, you know, I'm looking at my books and I'm thinking about all the stories that have come out in the last year or two. And I had this moment a couple of weeks ago where I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. And I pulled them all off the shelf. So yeah, John Howard Yoder, Jean Vanier, Ravi Zacharias, and then most recently, Bruxy Cavey. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that one hit me in a different way, just because I had kind of looked up to Bruxy as like, the anabaptist megachurch pastor who could actually do it well right and then you hear all these stories of you know these big name pastors who have this fall from grace um because they got involved in some abuse of power or some you know sexual abuse um and i always thought like well at least we have a good one right like at least Mm. there is an anabaptist megachurch Um, that can be trusted you know that like that kind of thing and then news came out about bruxy's sexual misconduct um and i think that's what probably broke me i just took those book off the shelf and like okay i'm done with this um yeah, I don't know how. Like, what do you do, Carrie? Are those books still on your shelf, or or uh, do you, maybe they were never there in the first place?
1: Oh, I'm like the first person at the recycling bin. I'm like, bye, no one needs you anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, right? There's this idea that good ideas are found in multiple places, right? And that maybe we mm. don't need to to pick up those things from those authors. I can say from your list of authors that I didn't own a lot from those guys, actually. (laughs) Those weren't my faves, so didn't have to get rid of them. Um, But it it is tough. Like, I mean, especially when you think of Brexie, like, he was called their teaching pastor, and that was because he was a good Mm -hmm. communicator about Anabaptist values. And he's someone who kind of took the Mennonite out of Anabaptism and was able to be like, and a baptism, and that was like more palpable for a lot of people, right? Like they found that more accessible. It was more widely accessible. He was a good speaker. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's more hurtful to keep those books, to keep those songs. I think we talked a little bit about this in our Voices Together episode. Um, Sometimes Mm -hmm. like by purchasing these things or singing these songs, like we're giving money to these people. (laughs) Like is that really where we want want our money to go is that really where we want to teach our youth to be like hey here's like a great like way of thinking about anabaptism or theology but oh caveat like this person's Mm. not a great role model
0: right and you know i think about those those kind of big name authors and like how we use their books or whether they should be on the bookshelf um but just a couple weeks ago carrie i don't know if you caught word of this that in the Southern Baptist Convention, a report was released about the rampant uh, sexual misconduct and abuse that was that was kept hidden by the conference. Right. And this is the biggest Christian conference in North America. Um, And this, again, was like, bam, shock people. Uh, And and after that, though, I was like, okay, like, what else is going to surprise us? Like, this is just coming out of Everywhere, um, I, yeah, I I don't know. Like, are 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 these these news stories of uh, you know a, abuse and sexual misconduct in the church? Is that kind of old news, or or is it still hitting you um, in different ways?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess to some extent it's old news for me because to me the Southern Bath, Baptist Conference feels really far away. Um, yeah, I'm not part of it. Um, I think what hit me for a number of years was the. Um, information coming out of the Mennonite church that we have our own people mm. that have you know we've been finding out um maybe some are recent some are really old and I'm sure there's lots we don't even know about um of leaders in our own churches who have done this stuff so now when it's another denomination I'm kind of like well that's not surprising but it's it's more when it's in our own circle right it just really it really hits home
0: I work for a church. I work for the institution. So do you, Carrie. Yeah. Right. And and there's so many of us uh, who are um, who have given our lives and, and who really love church uh, and the organizations that we're a part of. Um, but I wonder how many people continue to lose faith and lose trust. In our institutions because of these stories coming out. I guess this is one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation uh, with Jamie Friesen and Val Hebert, and and maybe this is a great place to bring them in, because Jamie Friesen and Val Hebert uh, have been working with the Mennonite Central Committee in the Abuse Response and Prevention Program. Uh, and, And Jamie has been there for quite some time, a number of years, and Val has started just recently. Uh, and actually Val is also a professor of sociology at Providence uh, Theological Seminary in Manitoba. So I, I think this is just great timing and, and two of the best people to bring into this conversation just to talk about kind of what, what are the times that we are in and, and what can we do or what should we do or what are we doing? Um, in order to respond and also to prevent abuse uh, within the church and among Christians. So, Jamie and Val, thank you so much for joining us and for giving your time to join in this conversation.
2: Well, thank you for having
3: us, Moses and Carrie. Yes, I'm I'm glad that you care about this issue. Thank
0: you. Yeah, for sure. I, I think people would be, first of all, interested to know that Mennonite Central Committee has this program uh, because when you think of Mennonite Central Committee, you you know, th- one of the first things you think of like response and relief across, you know, across the world when there's disasters or when there's famines and things like that. Right. But um There's this program within Mennonite Central Committee, at least in Manitoba, that's dealing all with abuse uh, response and prevention. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Just like what is the work that you do? And is this all over Canada? Is this just specific to Manitoba?
2: Sure, I can answer that. Um, So, yeah, this, this specific program began, I think, back in the 90s. And it was somewhat of a response to research that was done by Isaac Bloch back in the 90s around abuse in Christian homes and churches. And at the time, this program focused a lot more on domestic abuse, not to say we don't uh, uh, talk about that and raise awareness, but a lot of the resources and energy at that time was around educating the church about domestic violence and the realities uh, that many, many individuals in our communities were facing. Yes, the program's been around for 20 plus years. I'm not sure actually what anniversary we're on, Um, but it's certainly the scope of the program's expanded and it's a lot more focused now on equipping and resourcing faith communities to both understand uh, abuse, to be educated about it, and also look how do we prevent it and respond to it in ways that are uh, actually healing and restorative. So that is a pretty broad focus. We also have colleagues in BC who, coordinate a a program called End Abuse. Uh, A lot of their work is more specific to intimate partner or domestic abuse. So they run lots of groups for women who are healing from domestic violence, but they also run groups for men who are wanting to change their behavior. Um, So those are, BC and Amato are the places that have the the two most concentrated programs doing this work. And then, yeah, Ontario and Saskatchewan also have more restorative justice type programming. so we certainly dialogue with them as well around certain projects.
0: And, and Jamie, you've been part of this program for a number of years. I don't know exactly when you started. Um, and then Val, you, you joined on. Uh, Val, why did they bring you on? What, what is your kind of role in this?
3: Um, oh, I've taught sociology for about, I don't know, 20-some 20, 20 years. Um, men, women in society, children in violence, marriage and family, which is now being renamed uh. Intimate Relations Um, and I, uh, you cover lots of sensitive topics in those courses and I received so many disclosures. One of the assignments that I build into every course I teach is just a reflection because I want to take the temperature of the learning environment in the room. So they just get to say what's sticking in your brain, what bugs you about what I've said, what do you love about what I've said, what do you not understand? So they can just talk to me. And in those assignments, I received so many disclosures of abuse Um, and so many of them had tried to tell people and they were not taken seriously uh, or they were silenced. And many of their abusers were like like pastors, church leaders, youth leaders, fathers, grandpas, Uh, occasionally a female abuser as well that's um, the exception, not the rule, but that's there, and so we need to make sure we keep that in the conversation too. And I just finally, the weight of it felt a bit much, and I wanted to do more than just receive stories. So, and then I, I did a series of public lectures just to generate awareness, and Jamie sat in on one of those lectures. And, uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history, yeah. Huh, Jamie? <laughs> yeah, now you work together. Yeah, we work together. <laughs>
0: You've mentioned a few times now the the amount of disclosures you've received, Val, or just the, the studies um, that Isaac blocked did, Jamie. Um, but I think there would be many people, when thinking about the church and thinking about a peace church like the Mennonite church, who would say uh, kind of same thing when you hear about, you know, brexy Cavey's misconduct, like, but not, but not among us right? Like, yeah, we know that abuse uh, is an issue out there, but not among us. Uh, Like what if, you know, someone who would just ask you, like, yeah, what what is the scene like in the Mennonite Church or in our constituency, right? Because this extends just past Mennonite Church Canada, you know, MCC works with a whole host of uh, peoples. Um, What is the scene like, you know, that we get an understanding of what people within our churches might even be dealing with?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly I haven't done a survey of the landscape, so I can only speak anecdotally. Um, But I just think, you know, the statistics name that one in three women and one in six men will experience sexual abuse before the age of 18. That's pretty unanimous. And I think we need to really remember as a church that those statistics are true in our communities. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that abuse happened within the confounds of a church, but like every community has a huge population of people that's been impacted by abuse. So if we don't think it's happened, um, we're sadly misinformed. And we have to remember that, yeah, every community, I would say at least a half of our communities have been impacted by some form of abuse, whether in their child, probably for most people happened in their childhoods uh, before the age of 18, but that we also, I believe every community has individuals living in relationships that are harmful and scary and We don't maybe know this because it's so shameful to talk about it And we're not we haven't been great as a church in creating places where people can talk about it Just because there is stigma still if you're in a relationship that is abusive and you're a Christian. What does that mean about me, right? so Yeah, I guess when when you ask what the landscape is like, um, I don't know if it's that different than it is anywhere
3: else. Well, if you if you survey the landscape in terms of the research that's been done, there are many who would argue that rates of abuse are actually higher in conservative Christian contexts than they are in the general public.
0: Wow,
3: there's lots mm. of research um, that points in that direction. So, not only is it not less, but in some Christian contexts, it's actually more. But
2: with that vow, I think there's sometimes a belief that oh, if, we, mm-hmm. if our church has maybe more progressive values and politics, and it's not an issue here. So that that very statement—it's true—but I think sometimes then churches think, oh, this isn't really an issue because we have these types of values and politics. So we don't really need to address that or talk about it because we're so we're so evolved or yeah, <laughs> no,
3: whatever. we want to. I mean, there's <laughs> there's no context which is immune to this form of human brokenness.
1: And I think that's a good starting point for the church to realize, like, I think we sometimes like think we're special in certain ways, right? Like we're better, or we have (laughs) these values. So of course it's not here. We can't see it. We haven't heard about it, but um, what a good reminder.
0: So when you walk into a church or a group that you're speaking to, do you have the mindset that You know, there's somebody here, or it could be multiple people here who are experiencing abuse right now.
3: Absolutely. Every time. You put more than 10 people in a room together, and you know you've got a victim, a survivor, something.
2: And and I would say most of the time when I do speak somewhere, like almost guaranteed someone will come email me or follow up with me after to talk about something that happened to them. Yeah. So my assumption is always that there are people in my midst who... Yeah, have experienced abuse. Val, I'm curious, you've
1: spoken about getting disclosures, and as pastors, those come our way too. Um, Do you have a way in which you respond to them, or is there always, it's just a unique situation, and so you respond uniquely to each?
3: Oh, I think Jamie's, like, because I was responding within my role as a professor. Uh Right, so, I mean, you receive, you believe, you validate uh you make space for them to say as much as they want to about it and not more than they want to about it and then then i would ask them is there anyone else you've told this to if not you need to find somebody um we can find someone here at school or you can find someone else i would often encourage them not to tell someone if especially if it happened in their family or inside a church not to choose someone from inside of, of the context in which it happened, because those people are motivated to protect reputations, to find someone outside of those contexts. Um, so I just made sure that I did a good handoff because it wasn't my role to counsel. Uh, but I'm going to hand this question over to Jamie because Jamie's wisdom takes us past what I would have done in my role as a professor.
2: Yeah, no, Val, your your answer was excellent. I think so much of, of really responding is really uh, is believing and listening and creating space for someone to tell their story as much or little as they want. Um, I think that's often when people first speak; it's just they've never mm-hmm. even like put words to an experience, and it often they don't even know themselves exactly what they want or what they're doing. It's just like this this thing happened. Um, Sometimes in my work, people reach out because they're at a point where they want something to happen, right? So I think there's different kind of quote-unquote yeah. types of disclosures, yeah. right? And I think when someone wants something to happen, they're at a point where, like, I, I maybe want some justice, I want accountability, I want this to be a known thing. And then I think in my work, I have a lot of discussion around pros and cons and different avenues and really create uh, support for the person to explore a path of justice because... Uh, guaranteed it will be taxing and trying in some way it's never a, a fun path necessary to walk so yeah and, and 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 of course there are types of disclosures too that do re- sometimes require a response based on law mm-hmm. right especially if it's a, there's a children involved right so that gets complicated too um, if we believe that children are at mm-hmm. risk of being abused then then yeah then there is uh, a response or an action that has to be taken right.
3: I think, too, when my students disclose to me, it they're in a different place in their journey than when people are disclosing to you, Jamie, because they, sure. they already know you're the person who's supposed to know what to do about this. Mm-hmm. And in my case, it's often mm. uh, students are going, I was abused. That's actually what that was. Mm-hmm. It, it's the first time they're claiming language that makes sense of what actually happened to them so many of them when it's psychological abuse or emotional abuse um, those are often so far under the radar and yet they can be so damaging uh, that they don't realize it
0: you know it's very likely that there could be someone listening here who hasn't come to that realization Um, and it might be helpful just for everybody to kind of say like how do we define abuse yes there are many different kinds but is it a power thing? How would you just kind of simply <laughs> define that for us?
2: I mean, I can give a sentence and then like I, mm-hmm. if I was teaching, I would probably then say a lot more or, or disclaimer it a bit. But yeah, I mean, I think abuse is, is essentially actions that take power and control away from someone and leave someone feeling scared or marginalized or degraded or violated in some ways, right? So um, certainly the impact is a place to start looking um and of course we can look at the impact of behaviors and we do need to you know ask ourselves i think val and i talk about this a lot too like we can feel violated and um maybe traumatized by something that doesn't mean someone was abusing us but i think it's really important that we do start by listening to our experiences because so many of us have been taught to ignore that um but then to get curious about what behavior happened here um, was someone exerting power over me? Was my voice, did someone take away my ability to create a boundary? Was my voice disrespected? What, you know, so on and so forth. But yeah, power and control is, you know, when people teach about it, is, mm-hmm. is really at the heart of it.
3: And then when you think about the types, like you can be verbally abused quite significantly uh, s- simply by constantly being berated and made to feel small. You can be emotionally or psychologically abused without any name-calling because, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if your partner uh, controls you, wants to know where you are all the time, wants to know who you're talking to, wants to see what your text messages look like, that's a very specific kind of psychological control um, or financial control when a partner can't spend money, doesn't have access to money, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all forms of abuse that aren't usually on people's radar. Physical and sexual are, but these other ones are often precursors to those uh, and also are standalone forms of abuse. And as soon as people start hearing descriptions of those different types is when they realize um, actually that's That's why my childhood was so hard or that's why this relationship is so hard because there's actually psychological abuse happening here. And I I had no word for that or no label for that. So simple, just simple education. It's amazing what what that can do. Knowledge is always power for good and ill. (laughs)
0: We're gonna pause our episode just for a moment to give away another awesome resource thanks to Common Word and Herald Press. For this episode, we're giving away Susanna Larry's new book entitled Leaving Silence: Sexualized Violence, The Bible, and Standing with Survivors. If you would like to win a copy of this book, all you gotta do is go to our Facebook page at the Menocast. If you go to our page and you like our page, you will automatically be entered to win a copy of Leaving Silence. This book was put out by Herald Press. If you'd like to see what other great books are coming out through Herald Press and Menomedia, you can go to heraldpress.com. And of course, a big thank you to the Common Word Bookstore and Resource Center. Go to commonword.ca to access thousands of great free online resources. And did you know that Common Word curates congregationally created resources on its website? That's right, if you have resources that you would like to share with the wider church, contact Common Word through commonword.ca and get in touch with them to see how you can submit your resources that others can use. And that's the great thing, if you go to Common Word, you can look up all kinds of worship resources that were created by our congregations. In the search bar, you can type in scripture passages, prayers, themes, seasons of the year, and find all kinds of resources specific to your search. Again, that's commonword.ca, where you can share resources that you've created and also access those that have been shared by others for you. And again, if you would like to win a copy of Suzanne Larry's new book entitled Leaving Silence, go to our Facebook page at The Meadowcast, like our page, and you will be automatically entered to win. Now let's get back to the conversation. We got to talk about something that uh, definitely for many circles uh, in the Christian world and non-Christian world too, has become quite the trigger word whenever talking about abuse. And you kind of touched on it a bit there, Jamie. But when we dig down right to, okay, we see the, the issues, we see um, the people suffering from abuse, we see the abuse of power within churches and within leaders, and and all of that. But what is at the root of it? Like, what is causing it? Um, and one of the words that many people do not like is this word systemic. Jamie, you talked a bit about, um, you know, just the statistics, right? That most abuse is committed by boys and men. Um, and then talked a little bit more about, uh, you know, what, what might be at the root of that societally, uh, and then another big trigger word for, for, uh, guys, especially, you know, I, I would say my generation too, um, is this word toxic masculinity, uh, and that, you know, we might have a systemic problem, uh, whether it's in the church or whether just in culture of toxic masculinity and people who just won't buy it. Right. Who just they, they don't see it. And and mm-hmm. that, in fact, is, you know, some people will say demasculating um, men and boys. So, you know, how, how do we have this conversation uh, and, and how do you respond to that kind of thing?
2: Yeah. I mean, you didn't throw the word patriarchy in there. I thought I, I kept thinking that that was the word. I <laughs> should kept have put thinking that, that one was the. I thought yeah. kept thinking like he's gonna say
0: patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: I think like these types of words often, and again, I'm not a male, but I think what it evokes in a lot of guys is a feeling like um, like the underlying message is that men are bad, men are the problem, um, and it of course it's gonna evoke like a sense of shame and I feel really strongly that like these conversations around changing the systemic stuff can't be shame based and it has to come from a place of really encouraging and empowering young guys to want to be agents of change and to want to model something different and I think if we start the conversation from a different place and really ask like what are the ways that patriarchy isn't serving you because that's the thing, like no one wins Mm. with patriarchy. Like everyone has to cut off parts of themselves in this, in this hierarchical way Um, we, we do society. So I don't know. I think we need to start the the conversation, not from a shame based place, but a place of, of what is the, what is the world that you want to see and how is toxic masculinity or patriarchy keeping you small as a, as a man which I think it's a different starting point, and I think a really important one. I don't know, Val. Val has probably lots more she can say about this,
3: the systemic stuff as a well, sociologist. You have lots of things to say about this too. So. Um, I mean, I, I was looking at that question. I sat with it for about a half hour. Uh, as I think about religious culture, right, because that's the system, systemic piece here, Um, And there's just lots of things to think about there. I mean, just the notion, so I'll narrow it to Christianity, but I think this applies to religions more generally. But when, when our religious experience is defined not as a journey or an exploration, but as an arrival point at which you must exist, you have immediately closed off the idea that we have things to learn. We just that we're always learning and that we're always changing and that our spiritual expression is always changing, that there's journey here. And so because we create this static sense and we do it denominationally of this, this, okay, this is what we've arrived at, this is what we believe, this is exactly what we have to stick with now. As soon as you step outside of that in any way, you are silenced or outed or um, made to feel the stranger or bad in some way. And so when we set up a culture that looks like that, we have made ourselves very vulnerable uh, to abuse being hidden because we, we're, there's so many ways in which you have to be careful what you say or you're suddenly you're not the right kind of Christian. So, so that's, that's a much bigger issue than just the abuse issue, actually, I think. Just the way we frame what it means to be faith pe- And notice I'm verbing the word faith. I am not a woman of faith. I am on a faithing journey, which is a completely different way of conceptualizing mm-hmm. my own understandings of myself as a spiritual being. So that's at, like that's at the broad fringes of the Christian ecosystem when it comes to systemic mm-hmm. issues. Um, I mean, patriarchy. It, um, as long as we, as long as we don't employ any of the rich mother metaphors for God that are available to us in the biblical text, and we, we only conceptualize God with the metaphor of father, we are immediately creating a world in which God, God. if God is male, then male is in some way God. And that's, it's so beneath our surface. We're so used to dear father, dear father in heaven, that, that we don't realize how deeply that's affecting us. I'm a language and culture specialist, so that I could go on about this for a very long time. <laughs> um, but just mm, balancing yeah. our metaphors, like if, if God is, can only ever be male, that's another big piece of our systemic structure that will constantly, no matter how much we work in the middle of it, to change things, that will press, that will keep pressing in on us all the time. So I think that has to get worked at. And then there's just our, our sex-aversive way of doing church. We want uh, purity culture is a really big problem Um, because it silences our kids. And um, I would say about 78% of our Christian kids are sexually active, even if it's just experimental, even just briefly. And churches pretend that's not happening. And so you've got this disjunct between um, what's actually going on with the youth generation and what the churches are willing to say and acknowledge and talk about. And if we can't open up a conversation about healthy sexuality because we 're so scared to admit that they're having sex, uh, we again um, make them vulnerable to being abused, because now we can't teach anything about robust boundaries or what healthy sex actually looks like. And so the pastor comes along and starts grooming or starts, and you have no you have nothing. you have no tools because we didn't give you any mm. Sorry, I could, I could just keep going here, but <laughs> th- those are just some things that I think are um, quite problematic that are, that are larger, but that, that keep forcing, uh, pressurizing what's going on at the center in our micro lives. So those things, I think, have to get talked about and addressed in some way. And I realize those are big macro issues that I'm identifying. But ultimately, social change doesn't happen unless we're doing that work at the same time that we're doing the micro work.
1: No, but I think, Val, thanks. You've noted some, yeah, some connector points for us, God as male and a purity culture being some of our root causes there.
3: And those are tricky Those are tricky conversations, you know? You, you, um, mm-hmm. Pornography is a huge issue right now, and those scripts are... Um, often very violent and because we have got lots of good neuroscience now showing that porn actually is addictive and that you need to get a harder and harder hit every time and then in premarital coaching that I do it's not unusual for couples to already have bumped into the fact that he's asking for something that was part of a porn scene Mm
0: -hmm.
3: and it produces lots Mm -hmm. of spectatoring where we don't we're not entering the sexual moment, we are watching ourselves in it. Because most of our knowledge about sex is what we watched. And so that's another deep psychological form of control because we've been sexually socialized to watch sex. And then when we have sex, we're actually just watching ourselves. Which Mm. also creates Mm. all kinds of vulnerability because we've lost its heart and its meaning and its, Mm. yeah. And churches don't want to talk about any of this. Like, I don't get invited to talk about healthy sexuality in a church.
0: <laughs> you want to come to our church? <laughs>
3: <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. you, might, you might get but, fired sure. if you let me go up
0: there and talk yeah. about sex. But... No. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think
3: so. But... I don't know anything about your church, yeah, so this yeah, is not actually right. a directed that's comment right. at your yeah, church. Yeah. So. No, I don't. <laughs> um,
0: like, I share my own story with people. Um, just kind of to give an example of the, you know the perfect storm that that all kinds of contributes to what I would describe as my own messed up uh, understanding or upbringing around sexuality. that my first introduction to um, sex was when my my uh, grade two or three friend, um, you know, when we were in grade two or three, I went over to his house, and I remember being in the garage. Um, And he said, hey, wait right here. And he went into the house and he brought his dad's porn magazine out. Um, That was my first introduction. And before that, there was no conversation about anything. And after that, still no conversation either in the home or in the church. And, you know, you have the experience of now, especially with all the technology yeah. and all the availability of oh, porn. Oh, it's a nightmare. Uh, you know, it's just a nightmare. Young kids getting introduced to this. And then, yeah, that mixed with kind of the purity culture within the church to not talk about these things, you can really see yeah. how things um, can get can get messed up. So, you know, I, I'm all there with you, right? Like uh, when it comes to how do we address some of these things, but how do you deal with some of the arguments that would say that even and and i've heard this in my conversations with people who are angry with the kind of work that you're doing uh, that will say patriarchy itself is a myth right they they would not even acknowledge that that is a thing um uh, and and that actually men are the ones who are oppressed you know those kinds of arguments like how how do you go about trying to do something about it when that's the response. Maybe you've never come across this, which is great. Oh, oh no.
3: <laughs> no, 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 no. We have.
2: Um, yeah. I don't even know if I can really respond to that. I mean, those of course those arguments are always going to be. And if I have a capacity, I would probably get really curious mm. <laughs> and try to really understand where they're coming from. I think it's interesting for, for people to say it feels like men... Men are the ones that have no power. I, I want to dig into that. I mean, I would probably put my therapist cap on a little bit. <laughs> but it's it's really upsetting for some people to hear that, and you can't always stay in a grounded place and get really curious um, to hear what's behind that kind of comment. But um, if I had the capacity, that's maybe where I would turn to. But I, in this work, I have a long, long time ago let go of the fact or let go of the hope that I will be able to be impactful in every space. I just can't. And there will be resistance. And mm. I can't. Um, I would have gotten burnt out a long time ago if I had let those types of voices or opinions yeah. um, weigh on me too heavily or focused on, only on that. I, feel, I try to focus more on the spaces where we're welcomed into and where people are honestly and uh, genuinely seeking change mm. I don't know maybe that is maybe that's too hope maybe that's too hopeless I don't know
1: <laughs> no I, I mean there's a it sounds like there's a point of self-care there right and the end that like where do you put your energy in a place where like if someone's bringing up that argument right how much headway yeah. are you gonna make on that whereas mm-hmm. you know you like you said you have spaces where you can make a difference you are
3: welcome mm-hmm. I think about this a lot Jamie and I talk about this a lot how do we weave in restorative justice perspectives yeah into this discourse now um in such a way that those people who feel like this is just all so unfair um can hear that we we are still being fair and actually our goal is restoration for everyone not restoration of relationship but rest so that that father who's abusive heads into a caring dad's program in order to to make some change like we we Our goal is still restoration and that, I think about Rod Friesen from Ontario, who's part of our Abuse Response Network, and the importance of community healing Mm. and the need for restorative justice principles to start being woven into that. Like MCC does this in lots of other areas, but we need to start weaving it more into this particular very new challenge as more and more stories come forward. And I think if we could do that, maybe some of these other voices would be willing to listen a little longer or stay in the conversation a little longer before just saying I'm out. I might be naive, like Jamie. Maybe I'm just this is just. Maybe I'm just too optimistic. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
2: I this is maybe this is me psychoanalyzing a bit too much, but I have a feeling, or my my hypothesis is that when people are extremely resistant. um, to the concept of patriarchy i'm guessing that the resistance is tracked to avoid a uh, feeling shame
3: mm-hmm. yeah right
2: so wise observation yeah well, well thank you Val. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> i just think that that type of defensiveness often points to inner shame like if this is true then what does this mean about me or what does this mean about my life or the the gender i'm a part of And so I think we do need to create spaces for for people to work through their sense of shame. Just as let's say white people need to work through their sense of shame about being white. Mm -hmm. I think if people stay in shame or or use defenses so they don't want to feel their shame, like that is where that's the very space that perpetuates violence.
1: I'm curious. Value, you brought up this idea like restoration, and I can tell that you're talking about it for, for everyone, for both abuser and victim or survivor. Um, that's difficult for the church. We've seen that play out publicly on forums, on comments, on articles, in the Canadian Night magazine. Um, whereas I think, yeah, it's difficult for some people to feel like they can give much grace or forgiveness to Mm -hmm. abusers and we also have a challenge when i think churches offer forgiveness which feels like it's on behalf of a church but in reality we know that it is a survivor whose um, right is to give forgiveness if they so choose and how and how that looks yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts on that like how do we balance that because sometimes it feels like extending grace and healing to an abuser feels like a betrayal Mm mm-hmm Someone well, who's uh that.
3: forgiveness is not a goal of restorative justice. Uh, it's it's a non-player. Hmm. It, it it might be a side product, just like happiness can be a side product of a, a wisely lived life, but isn't necessarily so. Too forgiveness it's not. It's more about, um, I mean, you have th- like the victim or survivor-centered work that you're doing, and then that survivor gets to decide, do I ever want to see this person again? Do I want to say, why this, why that, why, or do I just want to walk away from this? Uh, that's restorative, because that person's getting the choice. But but it's not healing for the community if the victim is just completely, or the perpetrator is just um, ostracized. Now, it depends on the severity of what's going on here. I mean, if there's something illegal, If you have sexually harmed a child, there are legal processes that must take their course. So it's also a matter of degree. But how can, just like how can an abusive um, partner go through a caring dad's program and actually become a better person, which doesn't mean that that dad is ever going to go back into that home. But if we don't do something with that dad, then that dad's probably going to land up in another relationship where he repeats those same behaviors. So restoration... People think restorative justice is about restoring that relationship, and it's not. It's about restoring the people who were broken and harmed and who were their harmers. Can we still say that the person who did harm can, can recover from that harm, from being that person who harmed? And sometimes no. But I like to believe that sometimes yes, which is very different than saying that the community has to extend forgiveness and grace, and that's... It's not about, that's not what's being restored. It's about giving the person, the community giving that person a chance to restore themselves. Yeah, no, I think everything
2: Val says is very wise. And I think sometimes, um, you know, the church may feel that um, we are not practicing restorative principles because there's consequences. And I think we need to understand that Restorative justice does not mean that someone who's caused harm doesn't have to live with the consequences. Mm-hmm. They might have to lose a position. And I think someone's feeling is, well, they're being punished and this is vindictive. And it's, it's no, this is a consequence of engaging in a behavior that mm-hmm. caused a lot of harm. And it's a natural consequence. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's
3: not um, an even an arbitrary one. <laughs> um, and that doesn't
2: mean that there aren't there can't be opportunities for that, that person to pursue a path of of healing um, but I think too often this idea of restorative justice gets conflated yep. with there no yep. there being no consequences yep. and the oftentimes the person who caused harm then mm-hmm. takes on a bit of a victim identity well mm-hmm. now I'm the one being punished here right um, so now we feel sorry for the perpetrator because yeah of course it, it caused tons of Um, damage and pain in their family of course they've lost their job they're losing everything Um, so then all of a sudden what we often see is this whole everyone's feeling so much for the perpetrator and all they've lost and we're forgetting okay there's victims here who've also they they lost everything before this came to light right Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that someone lost something and is having to live the consequences doesn't mean it's a unfair, unjust process.
3: In fact, a good restorative justice process should have that perpetrator willingly give things up Mm
2: -hmm.
3: as they come to recognize the harm they've done and the natural consequences. So they, they cooperate with those natural consequences because they're now going through their own restorative process of recognizing they did harm, they can no longer be in this position, they can actually never do this kind of work again, and that that is as it should be. Uh-huh. That's part of their restorative journey, actually.
0: Right.
3: Is the recognition of the harm done and a willingness to, to fully cooperate with those consequences instead of having them imposed on them. Which we have to do. Uh-huh. Right, so, so there's a dance there. But that's, that's what I mean by restorative for the perpetrator. Which is a completely separate journey from restoration for the victim. Mm. But there are two restorative journeys that should be happening.
2: And I find I think it's very interesting that like the the principles of restorative justice, the the, the three starting questions, right, are who is harmed, what do they need, yeah. and whose responsibility it is to meet those needs. And yet, oftentimes, when um, in the Mennonite Church, when there's a, a case of abuse, we very very quickly go to, well, this isn't restorative for the person who is perpetrated, but. Well, let's ask those three fundamental questions first. Like, restorative justice is actually about creating safety and choice for those who've been
3: harmed. And they get to lead what they do and don't want from the perpetrator.
0: How does that play in when uh, perpetrators pass away and then the news comes out?
3: Oh, Mm -hmm. Then they need Mm -hmm. a really good therapist. Then they need to go see Jamie.
0: Yeah, go see Jamie. Yeah, well...
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think
2: I think too that we need to we need to kind of in some ways think of justice making as something that can't be contingent on the perpetrator. Mm. Mm-hmm. If justice is always contingent on what mm. the perpetrator does or doesn't do, they'll never be just. They'll never be justice. That's a good right. point,
3: Jamie. Yeah. Mm. That's very insightful. Um,
2: and I think for a lot of the a lot of people who have been impacted by uh, abuse, like the they can experience justice in community. They can have, Mm -hmm. but through acknowledgement, through their voice being heard, through being believed, Um, all of these kinds of um, factors are what create justice, right? And that is independent on what a perpetrator does or doesn't do. I think where the possibility is for uh, reconciliation or restoration in a relationship does depend a lot a lot on the perpetrator in those situations the extent how much work they're willing to do how much therapy they do um whether they they can make amends you know um Mm -hmm. but that's not always the case like many times there are people who harm who deny it who don't take responsibility um and then and then justice for a victim can't be dependent on
3: on that other it has to be something they find within their community and that i mean rod friesen would keep coming back to that ultimately restorative justice requires a community yeah i'm I'm wondering because it seems very
0: seems like your work is very heavy Uh, like where are you finding hope and, and I wonder if you're, I mean, without you know, naming details or names or anything like that, are you able to tell us any stories of hope from the work that you've been doing?
3: Well, I've just been trained to be a Caring Dads facilitator, but I've not run my own group yet, and I'm terrified about that. But I will work up all my bits of courage when I get there to do that. Uh, but I have heard lots of stories from trainers about um, men who are abusive in their domestic contexts, who have actually um, changed, authentically changed, some who are now actual caring dads facilitators themselves. So that to me is like, that is a beautiful restoration story. And these are not men who've returned to the relationships in which they abused, again. But they have managed to restore their own personhood and their own dignity. And that has required tons of therapy going back into their own histories. Many of them have abuse in their own histories. So... Um, those are that I hang on to that, that, that I guess I want, I want to believe that we can dig the good out of somebody, that there's still a way to do that. I think maybe I just need to believe that for my own sake, mm. for, for my own sense of being in this world, that. And I don't know that it's always possible, but I so much want it to be.
2: Yeah. I mean, where do I find hope in, like, whenever um, I'm a witness to someone finding their voice?
3: That's hope. And Jamie does that beautifully.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you do. Thank you. You do. Thank you. Yeah. She's really good at that. um, I love facilitating support groups. It gives me so much energy, and I think the reason it's so important to, to do the support group work is, um, yeah, because I'm a witness to healing. And that's that's a real sacred thing to, to witness and watch and be a part of.
0: I have one last question for each of you. But before I ask that, we're going to do just a little plug here because listeners might not know that uh, Jamie and Val and I are actually part of a working group to create a curriculum uh, that we hope will be picked up by youth group's everywhere in Canada, even maybe beyond, right? (laughs) Uh, Talking about healthy masculinity. And this kind of goes back to, you know, addressing some of the root problems, right? Like, and and Val, you were talking, there's so many different spheres where we need to start with this in the family, in our churches, societally. Um, And and this is kind of one of those ways. So uh, for what seems like way too long, we've been working at this, (laughs) Jamie, probably three or four years, (laughs) It could Something be like more. This. Could <laughs> be even more. Um, but but Jamie uh, pulled a few uh, leaders within the Mennonite Church together here in Manitoba to start working on this curriculum, and we're now at the point of uh, getting it edited and creating some videos for it to be launched hopefully by the fall maybe a little bit later um but but jamie why don't you just say just a word about what what we're hoping for that curriculum or what we hope it might do for churches and for youth groups
2: what i hear from my male peers is how they really lacked growing up spaces where they could talk honestly about their struggles and what they were dealing with Um, and so this is hopefully a um a curriculum that, yeah, helps leaders or teachers to walk with young guys in a in a good way that that honors their wholeness mm. and that I think that's the intent of the curriculum is, um, we want our our young guys in our societies to be more whole, mm. and to be able to, for all their humanity to be uh, acceptable, and mm. to walk in relationships in ways that are healthy and nurturing Mm -hmm. and I think the curriculum hopefully is conducive to to that and create really important dialogues so
0: very cool well okay my last question then Uh, so I have a different audience in mind for each of you Val someone is listening to this episode who is experiencing abuse what do you want them to know
3: if they think someone's treating them in a way that does not feel good that does not feel safe I want them to know that they need to tell that to somebody. And if it's somebody inside the church, don't tell it to someone else inside the church. I'm sorry, but tell it to someone outside the church who doesn't have a vested interest in protecting the reputation of that church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so go tell a public school teacher or your resource counselor or, but, but you, if you keep that inside yourself, it'll get moldy and toxic And it will grow in there. So you have to put the story outside of yourself, into the sunshine, in the wind, and let some of the mold dry off and get a good look at what it is. got to get it outside of yourself.
0: Thanks, Val. Jamie, someone is listening here who is a leader in the church, uh, a pastor or a lay leader, and is now realizing, oh man, they haven't talked about this at all. What, what do you want them to know?
2: That there are lots of resources out there to support you in bringing this conversation to light. Um, Belle and I are always happy with opportunities to speak in churches, but yes, there are so many ways to bring this conversation into a church community. Uh, our website is one place, abuse, response and prevention.ca. Um, and yeah, of course, pastors are not going to be experts in this uh, field or this topic, and that's absolutely okay. Um, and thankfully, there's so many good resources and supports out there to, um, yeah, to raise awareness and to educate. So that's what I would say. It's never too late to start these conversations.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate the work you do uh, for, for the church and beyond. Uh, and value you both very much and um, yeah thanks for for joining us for this
1: yeah thanks so
3: much thank you for caring about this issue thank you for putting it out in in a public space somewhere and i echo i echo what val said
0: well as heavy as that topic was i mean it just feels so important that we have these conversations and thankful for for jamie and for val for joining us and uh, i mean they had so much to say carrie like uh, I'm curious, what stood out to you? Like, what are you walking away with?
1: Yeah, they just—they're so well spoken on the topic, right? Like, it's something as pastors we're very aware of, um, mm-hmm. and it affects us. It affects our churches. It's not a fun topic. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: not a fun topic,
1: no. <laughs> but it was really interesting. I thought to hear kind of like their the root causes. I mean, because it has always yeah. stuck with me that it. Abuses in the church, sexual abuses, sexual misconduct, often seem to be done by males, and that just has always yeah. like it makes sense with the patriarchal society and and the way men get power. But I really appreciate the way they they frame that, and that our purity culture in our church has really fed into that and made that worse and and kind of made it into a monster. Because I think as Mennonites, at least as Midnight Church Canada, you know, General Conference Midnights. I'm not sure if we would often say we have a purity culture, but I think we historically have, but we more see that as something the evangelicals do, not us. (laughs) And so it's good to recognize that and be like, yeah, have we been giving our youth and kids the tools? Do they have the Mm -hmm. tools to recognize it? Do they have the tools to put up boundaries? And do they have the tools to be able to share that with others so that can be prevented? it's just, it's a lot of food for thought as a, as a church leader
0: and, and i think too like i i don't know if i would have put those two together necessarily or just the idea that if you don't give kids the tools to know what boundaries are um then they won't be or, then they won't be able to recognize when maybe they're being groomed for something by a church leader or by a pastor um and that is very scary i feel like for uh, parents or for youth leaders um when you just kind of have that idea that you you just don't talk you don't talk about sex (laughs) because you want to protect as much as possible and any talk about sex might encourage your kids to do it um yeah i i feel like there's a lot of a lot of responsibility for institutions like the church to be addressing this kind of stuff and maybe because we haven't That's why there is so much abuse that's happening or that's come out in the last while. Do you guys do this at at Ottawa Mennonite? Like, are there conversations? Because I really can't say that there are for us.
1: Formally, no. Like, uh, different times when the conference has released, you know, a disclosure, we have sometimes held space and had kind of an open chat for people to come and chat about it and express how they're feeling like one that had come out in the last few years was someone who was um briefly employed at our church um Mm. and so the disclosure that had come out wasn't from the time they were at our church but you know being responsible people we recognize that there likely was something that happened like like you know like once you find one you often find many many incidences and so yeah we tried to open up space for people to come and talk and and make it clear where people could go if they were wanting to now disclose something but we haven't had the conversation on a big scale which yeah is something that we need to do i definitely talk about boundaries with youth and i talk about it in the sense of healthy intimacy appropriate intimacy like There are certain people it is appropriate to be a certain amount of intimate with. And that comes from both physical and emotional and verbally, like, is it appropriate to share this in depth with a stranger, but it might be appropriate to share Mm. with a friend or a family member. And so trying to help them think through what that is for each of them, because it it looks different for each youth, um, where -hmm. their boundaries are and where appropriate levels of intimacy are.
0: I mean, that, that sounds like, um. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like more than what we've done. And I wonder too, you know, in a church where you have like a solo pastor or it's a small church with not as many resources. Um, or also like a church where you're really kinda in close community with people, um, if it's harder to get into those conversations or I mean maybe that's just my experience too. Um or, you know, another thing that I, I've noticed uh Especially growing up, having these conversations, it was never really a conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it was more just a lecture, right? It wasn't about, hey, what are you experiencing as a young man? Like, what are the things you're trying to figure out about what it means to be a man uh, in this world, right? What are the messages yeah. that you're receiving about how you're supposed to live, and how does that compare to how you yourself feel and you know, like? It wasn't so much of that as it was just telling you, you know, don't have sex before marriage, you know, (laughs) don't do the bad stuff. And and that's it. You know, Carrie, one last question for you. And I'm curious because a lot of young people, you know, people our age, um, they would when it comes to these kinds of issues in the church or or other issues too that, you know, uh, when, when we have these things come up where um you kind of think like oh the church should know better that kind of thing mm. uh really drives them away from the church like what is it that gives you hope or or why do you stick in you know with the institution um when we do have all these issues that we still have to work through
1: that's such a good question and one i have pondered long and hard before <laughs> you know it's cuz the church has potential because jesus's message of mm you know, hope and healing and living a different way and living in right relationship with all that is around you, like, is really beautiful. And I think has a lot of potential in the church and throughout the centuries, it's gotten screwed up and we continue to screw it up. Me and you, Moses, we get things wrong, you know, <laughs> but at the heart of it, you know, the heart of the gospel and Jesus, it's really wonderful. And, mm. and we strive to live into that. And I think, the church. I think God is bigger than all the harm that the church has done, and it, mm. it's a lot of harm. Uh, but I think we have potential, and we need to keep pushing it, pushing it forward to keep finding that potential. For sure. But yeah. what about you? What finds you here, still in the church, <laughs> with all the knowledge that you have of its?
0: Oh yeah mistakes? it's a it's a good question. Uh, I I would say in my experience, my personal experience. I have seen way more good than uh, the evil that sometimes comes Mm. out of churches. And and maybe I'm just lucky that I haven't experienced abuse in the church and I haven't, you know, gone through a church split, you know, and seen Christians really get kind of divided and mean at each other um, where other people have had to live through that. and, And that has really pushed them away from the church. Um, Mm. And and so my personal experience is that, yeah, like, there is beauty in the church, and even in our brokenness, and even in our failure, um, there is beauty in that. And, and I imagine like the church as a place, um, you know, where, where, where first and foremost, victims um, can find healing and can find uh, community. Right. Like if if we didn't have the church, um, you wonder what those spaces might be. And and so, yeah, like we've messed a lot up by protecting abusers and kind of this holy hush that that they were talking about. Uh, But what if we what if it could be different? Like there is that beautiful potential that we would be a safe place and a place where people can find healing um, because we're really trying to live out the love and the message of Jesus. Um, And and I just personally don't have any other space where that might be possible for me. And so that's the church.
1: (laughs) Well, keep trying. Yeah, I like that.
0: (laughs) Well, I know we can keep going on here, but I think we got to wrap it up, Carrie. Uh, It was so great to have this conversation um, and have Jamie and Val joining us. And of course, we hope that next time, Ryan will be able to join us as well. want to thank you all for listening to the Meadowcast. you can find us at themenocast.com listen to episodes on our website or subscribe wherever you find your podcasts leave us a review if you like what you heard and join us on facebook twitter and instagram at the Meadowcast. we would love to hear from you if you have any comments questions or suggestions you can contact us through our website or at themenocast at gmail.com We would also like to thank Common Word and Herald Press for partnering with us to give away awesome resources and our advisory group for guiding us along the way. Lastly, I want to thank my co-hosts, Carrie Lane and Ryan Duick for the great conversations. I'm Moses Falco. Until next time.